Well, we're recording, so... We recorded all of that. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really good fodder. (laughs) I'll put that in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) For the extended episode? Yeah, the patron. (laughs) Yeah, that's what the people are paying for. (laughs) God help them. All right, welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's my turn. This week, I have chosen what is our second Ray Bradbury story on the podcast called All Summer in a Day. And John suggested I read from the beginning because I was struggling to come up with a part to read. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to just read it from the beginning. So here I go. Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Do the scientists really know? Will it happen today? Will it? Look, look, see for yourself. The children press to each other like so many roses, so many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years, thousands upon thousands of days compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain, with the drum and gush of water, with the sweet crystal fall of showers, and the concussion of storms so heavy they were tidal waves come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again, and this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus, and this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping, yes, yes. Margot stood apart from them, from these children who could ever remember a time when there wasn't rain and rain and rain. They were all nine years old, and if there had been a day seven years ago when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes at night she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming and remembering gold or a yellow crayon or a coin large enough to buy the whole world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face, in the body, in the arms and legs, and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum, the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces upon the roof, the walk, the gardens, the forest, and their dreams were gone. I forget how I came across this, but it was in some like comment section of another story where someone was like, oh yeah, Ray Bradbury does this in this one story. And I was like, sounds like a really cool story. (laughs) So (laughs) I grabbed it. Yeah. And I kind of realized like way after the fact that, you know, this is, I knew it was not the first time we had read him, but I couldn't remember which one the first one was. And uh, yeah, the first one was There Will Come Soft Rains. So it was also (laughs) referencing this like weather phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, but here's a guy that wrote sci-fi, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these short stories that were all like brief but wholly imagined worlds on the page. And in the section that I read, you get the entire premise, which is that these kids came to Venus at birth or, you know, were born on Venus. Margot, you find out later, came to Venus after living on Earth and is having the hardest time, like, adjusting to life without a sun. And, I mean, what a wild premise. The premise is what's sci-fi, right? But the the story itself is just about little kids being brats. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a story about like the solar eclipse, which is a phenomenon that we're familiar with. It's like cyclical, but rare. And you really do like parade the kids out to see it during school. And if you're dumb, you look right at it. And yeah, it's this whole like lesson. And for Margot, it's more than a phenomenon. It's a glimpse at a life she misses, right? She feels alone in the sense that she appreciates the sun and all that it offers. And she is so 
not just looking forward to this, but she needs it. And there's a part in the story where it talks about how they might move back to Earth because this has been so hard on her. And lose thousands of dollars. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's it? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It cost me thousands of dollars to get from like Ohio to Florida right now. So yeah, count your lucky planets. I'm kind of like blabbing, but basically that's why I picked it was because I had like heard the reference and I knew that Ray Bradbury was good. And I was like, well, once a year for a story by him is probably good. And in a thousand years, we'll get through his work. (laughs) Yeah, it would take a while. Yeah, there's nothing like necessarily like unique or different about this from all the other stories that we read, except that I liked it. And I think it's one that you read and remember. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've done, uh, we did two... uh... Curtis Sittenfeld stories. We did yeah. two Donald Bartlemy stories and now yeah. two Reed Bradbury stories. So it's fine. It's fine. If Rob <laughs> were still here, we'd he'd probably bring in a Bartlemy story like once a yeah. year too. Rob has a type. That's right. No, I love this story so much. It's deceptive because it looks like just this, like this kind of, like you said, sci-fi premise. They're on Venus. They get to see the sun. It's a bunch of kids. And there's also just this deep pathos to it too. Like these emotions oh, yeah. that well up. You're like, oh my gosh, that's that's terrible. Like this poor girl, the way the kid, and then, then what the kids go through when they realize what they've done. And I don't know, it's really interesting. It catches you off guard for sure. And then beside all that, Bradbury is just such an amazing stylist. I just love reading his lines. This was a great story. So the beginning part that I read, it's like, ready, ready, now, soon. Uh, Those are all like individual kids kind of talking or maybe like the group and the teacher talking to each other, but it's all dialogue. And then like when you're done with the dialogue after a second, it says like the children press to each other like so many roses. And you can immediately picture the way kids congregate and get excited and jump up and down on top of each other. And like they're basically clamoring to get a glimpse of this thing that they don't understand or appreciate, but know because they're being told is important you know it's like anything in school at that age it's like the butterflies are gonna hatch today right and kids are literally climbing over each other to get a glimpse at it but they don't necessarily appreciate it they're just part of the whole group that's going a little nuts for something it's like seeing a celebrity and you have to like get on someone else's shoulders and then poor Margot, she's not one of these idiot masses right she she gets it and she almost is like shooting herself in the foot by telling these kids how great it's going to be because they get really pissed at her when it doesn't happen on their timeline and then they lock her out of it. They're like, why don't you go hide in the closet and she misses the whole 20 seconds that the sun is out. Oh, It was two hours, wasn't it? I forget. Yeah, I mean, in the story, it's like so brief. Yeah, it's just like a paragraph or two. Yeah, it's it's really quick and yeah, maybe it's two hours, but poor Margot can't do anything about it. Not only is she like not able to see it, she's trapped in like a dark closet when it happens and this was like her saving grace for the next seven years and she was denied it and she yeah yeah, she understood the significance of it for her mental health like she knew how devastating it was going to be to miss it and god horrific and going back to like our last episode there's a lot of elements of the collective we in this not as a character or as like a point of view but you know as 
as like a concept. Yeah, the the collective children. Like, yes, they all did this. They all did that. Oh yeah, collective children are some of the most terrifying characters. That's right. Because right? <laughs> they're little assholes on their own, but when you get them together, then they're empowering each other to do stupid shit, mean, horrible stuff to each other. Like one kid almost never has a bad idea they carry out, but if somebody else is egging them on, you get a whole group that says that's a good idea. Then you lock a kid in the closet for two full hours and the teacher's like hmm. I love the moment when the teacher is like are we all here and they all scream yes <laughs> it's like nope she didn't check any further they had no compunction about just saying yeah we're all here yeah 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 they're terrible that's the takeaways don't have more than two <laughs> that's it's right dangerous yeah so but to your point I mean you mentioned that Ray Bradbury is his style is unique and he's not just saying today was the day the sun was going to come out on Venus, right? He's got a u- such a unique voice. It's almost like lighthearted. I don't know. He's like kind of effortlessly bouncing around these concepts. I even remember like there will come soft rains. He spends forever describing the robot house and how it stopped making pancakes and it stopped walking the dog. And But there's like a whimsy to it. And this is like such a sad story, but he's still telling it from this almost like removed point of view. He's like, and then the kids did something terrible and then the sun came out and then the kids remembered that Margo was in the closet. And then they felt bad. Does it read that way? (laughs) Yeah. I like the way he um, described they could not meet each other's glances. Their faces were solemn and pale. They looked at their hands and feet, their faces down. Margo, one of the girls said, well, (laughs) go on, whispered the girl. Yeah, I like that point of view, like uh, you said, the kind of removed point of view where you'd be really poetic about the scene and what's going on, but it's just not diving into people's feelings or thoughts. You're just getting a sense of them from, from outside, but they're still so vivid. You know, you can see how everyone feels. Um, just as descriptions of Margot, you see her as this frail little outsider. And then when the kids, when they're jubilant outside and they're enjoying the sun and the distinction between that and aftermath, when they realize what they'd done to Margot and how terrible it was. I don't know. You don't, it's not like you dive into some kid's head and feel his remorse. You see it on his face. Right. And I think maybe in this story, like the sense of like a narrator being removed is kind of like, this isn't like an adult that did something horrible to another adult. You know, it's almost like these kids that made a mistake. So he's not like condemning them or telling it in like this vicious way or like horrific way. It's more kind of like, it's a story about how devastating it is for Margot. Yeah. But it's also a story about how devastating it is for these kids who only realize when it's too late that they were wrong and they screwed Margot in a bad way like the sun didn't mean shit to them they didn't even know what it was but as soon as it's over like he's red they, they're whispering like oh margo yeah right so it's maybe the remove kind of lends to like the fact that these are naive children who probably as adults are going to be haunted by this yeah like margo's going to be fucked up but these kids that did it to her are going to be probably racked with some serious guilt. And I, I guarantee you every time the sun comes out, they'll remember Margo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's haunting, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. 
It's like any group story where something defining and terrifying in your youth, like, literally haunts you. And in this situation, it's like a mistake that they made. Basically a prank. Yeah. Or like we talked about in the last episode, Girls at Play. How, you know, the collective we is a terrifying figure and together they do terrible things. But I think the bigger takeaway is that they probably later come to regret it. Like you snap out of the collective we. Yeah. It'd be an interesting Celeste Ng or somebody to write like yeah. a follow up. Like yeah. these girls from Girls at Play 10, 15 years later. Remembering the new girl and what they did to her. And how, yeah. how they uh, dragged her into their uh, twisted little world. Yeah, I think, like I said, kids in a group do terrible things when they're all egging each other on. But as soon as you take them out of the group, they'll tattle on each other. They'll cry. Like, they come to their senses. And uh, I think as adults, we probably do that too, you know? On your own, you realize your ideas are very separate than maybe the rest of the group, you know? But there's like this group mentality sometimes. And it's like mob mentality. These little bratty kids, man. It's scary. Yep. Mob mentality is scary. There's a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of examples of that in history, right? Yeah, sheeple. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, back to our point. Ray Bradbury is a guy that's, you know, writing sci-fi, but it's not really sci-fi. This is a real story. Yeah, that's that's a good question of what comprises science fiction, right? I mean, it has the elements of science fiction. It's, it's This happens on Venus, you know? Right. He's setting up a situation in which it's been raining for seven years and the sun is about to come out for two hours and that's it for seven more years after that, presumably. And that's not going to happen. And, you know, you don't write a story set in Detroit where that's going on. <laughs> don't you though? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe i picked a bad example <laughs> but yeah the actual story itself is about people it's always about right. people right at least on the page yeah. or like uh the story of you it's sci-fi sci-fi is the package it's the wrapper it's the premise and it's the plot but it's not the story like the story is different yeah like the story of your story of your life is you know once you know the story it's a story of the daughter's life yes right which is purely human it has nothing to do with science fiction it could be anything right but the main draw is the alien. At least the, the packaging is about the aliens. Yeah, it doesn't mean that like you can remove the packaging and have the same story. Like not that one. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, these things are just like symbiotic. Like sci-fi lends a certain feel to a story. But a lot of these sci-fi writers are like getting at a truth that maybe the modern day reader wouldn't have the patience to sit down and pay attention to. Like you had to make it about aliens, and it was about aliens. They're not these independent things. You can't just like pull one and it's the same yeah but yeah we have to package it in a way that you'll stomach the takeaway the other thing i think that science fiction and like this bradbury story you can and even story of your life is you can set up a situation that could not otherwise happen yes living on venus where it rains for seven years right. and the sun only comes out for really two happen. hours will never happen anywhere but that setting right. the ability to see the future and understand like live through the future while you're living through the past and the present can't happen except for in that story right i think I think that's where the term speculative fiction is kind of this encompassing term for science fiction, yeah. fantasy, other things is where you speculate about something that cannot happen in other circumstances. Like if it's fantasy, be like some magical capacity or something, you know, what if everyone but could fly? Elves. What if yeah. there were dragons, you know, how would our life be different? How would human beings be human and have human stories except in that right. situation? 
I recently, just the other day, reread um, Ursula K. Le Guin's essay. It's like a pretty famous essay from Elfland to Poughkeepsie, where she kind of lays out the idea that fantasy stories aren't about the fantastic elements. This is her theory, but they're more about the remove of the language. She's making a stylistic argument that the fantasy stories are about style. And she points out that uh, some fantasy she read, there was a scene in it where these two characters are talking about like the council, the king's council or something walking down the street or walking through the castle and then she rewrote that as if it were set in Washington DC and they're talking about like the Senate she's like it's not fantasy if I can do that if I can rewrite this and it's just happening in in Washington DC then it's not fantasy it's something else what is it if it's not a genre though well her point was that what has to happen in a conversation is they need to speak differently they need to have like a fantastical air about them like you know some remoteness to the way they speak or the kind of people that they are there has to be uh more than just i'm holding a sword instead of holding a cell phone or whatever that's funny because like i said earlier how i've learned to like genres like this through you know seeking these stories out for the podcast and everything i think why i initially kind of shied away from this kind of stuff was because of the assumption that i did think that a lot of these writers just wanted to come up with something clever setting wise or premise wise and that they didn't deliver on the story but what i'm kind of realizing is that the good Good stuff that people really do regard as indicative of the genre is how they successfully use that packaging to deliver these unique messages in a way that, to her point, they're not inextricable. They can't exist without the other. Yeah, and I think at, a, at heart, the only stories that, that are any good are the ones that are about people being people and what the human experience right. is. Yes, yeah, spoiler, we only like to read about ourselves. That's right. I don't know. I think there's reasons for that that, are, that make total sense. But even if we move ourselves to another planet, even if we move ourselves to a fantastical kingdom that doesn't exist in reality with magic and dragons, even if we live in a space station, we're still going to be human beings and we want to see what it's like to be human in all those circumstances. And even literary fiction is like this. It's like, what is it like to live in Paris in the 1920s? Well, let's go read some uh, Hemingway or something. That's that's a funny comparison. Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's like you said, it's what is it like to be human in these situations, which is like why we like to watch superhero movies, right? Yeah. Like when I watch Wonder Woman, I'm like, wow, what if I was hot and strong? And, you know, it's it's less about... <laughs> How believable it is than, yeah, wanting to picture myself as a human having those things. I don't want to picture myself as an Amazon woman. I want to picture myself as a human having that stuff. And I don't want to picture myself as, like, an alien in these stories. I want to picture myself as a human in that scenario. People always make fun of Star Trek. The aliens were just people with funny foreheads. Yeah. And, and that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why it works is because it only matters if they're human. Like, we don't care if they're not human. <laughs> I mean, literally every alien that we've ever come up with in the National Enquirer and otherwise looks <laughs> a hell of a lot like humans. It's all we care about. All bipedal. They all have heads. Yeah. <laughs> Massive eyes. Yeah. I feel like I don't have a ton of insightful things to say about this story other than kind of what we said about sci-fi overall. Yeah, it was a good um, entry into discussing science fiction, I think. Yeah, and like I said, this is one of these stories that like, if you mention, oh yeah, Ray Bradbury and like the story about raining on Venus, got it, I'll remember everything about this one. It's one of these very simple stories, but so much is packed into it. And I don't know that we can always hope to accomplish that with like a very, 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 very simple 
plot. <laughs> yeah. But it's so straightforward. It's so quick. I mean, this is four pages, but like on my PDF, at least it's like broken up into columns. It's probably like actually like three pages the way it's like spaced out and everything. There's nothing to it. And we get this whole arc while being thrown into a sci-fi premise. Like that's pretty hard to do. I feel like a lot of writers would be clearing their throats still or building this world with Venus. And, you know, it's just not necessary. He so quickly builds this world by saying they live on Venus. They're the daughters of rocket men and women who came here to start a new civilization. It's like, wow, got it. And then all you have to do is remind us that like Venus is covered in clouds, which probably means it's constantly raining. And I immediately remembered that. It's like the greenhouse planet. And then I was set. That's all I needed for this story. I didn't need to know like anything else about how well, how'd they get there? How are they going to get back? You know, I had all those questions, but it didn't matter for the story. So he built the world so fast. And then the rest of it was just the story in this casual sci-fi envelope. That's a master of sci-fi, right? If you told me to write sci-fi, I would overdo it. It's funny that he builds it so effortlessly yeah. when these that genre of literary fiction of that's the genre of sad, poor people. Yes. The writers of those will spend 10 pages building the world of that sad, poor person in so much detail that we, I mean, we might not need it. Whereas he can do that in just these four pages and we get this really affecting story. Yeah. We're reading a master. Yeah. Do you have a takeaway? Do you dare have a takeaway? <laughs> I had a really kind of lame takeaway that I'll spend maybe a couple of sentences on. So I was thinking about this, I guess thinking about the world building stuff. And I kind of was like, this is one of those stories where the we can reverse the show don't tell. It's just that first big paragraph that you read. Like there's the dialogue at the beginning and then we get to, it had been raining for seven years, thousands upon thousands yeah. of days compounded. That paragraph made me think of tell, don't show, but tell beautifully, tell yeah. poetically. Then you can get away with it. This is just the situation. This is the premise. It's been raining for a long time. We're on Venus. Let's go. Interesting. Yeah, th- we talked about this in the, in the last episode. I was trying to remember if I mentioned it in this one, but we, in the last episode for the lottery, we talked about how just merely introducing the concept of like a town or townsfolk will like help a reader fill in the blanks for what that looks like. And, you know, maybe maybe back then, if you're reading Ray Bradbury, you know that you're reading sci-fi, so he can kind of get away with telling you like, this is not Venus, let's go, right? And like, you're like, all right, I'm filling in the blanks. I knew what to expect. I don't know Venus super well, but I get the concept of like, like the rocket ship generation and uh yeah i'm on the same page and i don't need you to spend more time on it than that what gets shown throughout this thing is the way that the kids behave their their interaction with each other and that's the important part we get to see the way they feel by what he shows us about them we get to see their you know the ending where they're remorseful we we understand that because he shows that to us he doesn't tell us and then they were remorseful right but for the actual premise like the kind of setup stuff the stuff that's not the story with heart that's just told and it works fine and being a like a prose poet like ray bradbury obviously helps because <laughs> you can read these lines forever yeah right I think my takeaway is kind of the fact that this is a really simple story. And I think a way that you can think about telling a simple but memorable story like this is to think about something in your childhood that was defining the way that I said this probably ends up being for these kids. And if you can think of something that was defining for your childhood because it was devastating, because that's usually what it is. It's usually like devastating or like pure joy. It's like an emotional extreme that you can remember. And if you try to 
like remember it and tell a friend or something, you're not going to have necessarily this 30 minute backstory to explain. You're just going to be like, yeah, one day at school, uh, I watched a kid get their arm broken on the swing and when the bell rang, everybody ran inside and no one helped the kid, right? It could be something like that, that you just like remember and whatever it is that felt defining to you, anything that you could say about it after what I just said would be something that you came to with the benefit of hindsight or in a therapy session. But that your memory of it itself is concrete and it's tight and it's short, just the way this story is portrayed. So he doesn't spend a whole lot of time dissecting what this means for Margot, but he sets up the premise. And if she were telling it, this is how she would tell it, right? I'm from Earth, rain's about to stop, and I was really looking forward to it when a bunch of kids locked me in a closet. That's the story. And she doesn't have to say it much longer than that for it to be as devastating for us. It's like, my takeaway is to use the power of the human mind to simplify and condense these horrific things without blowing them up or making them bigger than they need to be. They probably stand on their own as terrific stories because of how impactful they clearly have been. You don't need to add much to them for people to get that, right? I think we've all told a story like that to someone where you're like, oh God, yeah, I remember when this and this happened when I was little and you're just like, wow. Oh my God. You know, they're always horrible and they're always jarring and you almost do them a disservice to over explain them. So I bet you either have 10 of those yourself that you could write really short or you could come up with one really easily. And I think that's the effect of this story for me. I'll remember it because of how devastating and simple it was. Yeah, that's good. I like that as a takeaway. Now I'm like, oh, I could, what could I make into a story? I know. I'm trying to think. I know as soon as we stop, I'll have. 10 actual stories of terrible things I remember from childhood. It actually reminds me that story of Griffin that we read. Yeah. It's kind of like that, except that's not a horrific memory. That's just like an impactful memory for him, for that character. Yeah, it can be impactful too. That one was longer to tell because it wasn't as horrific. Yeah, it was more to spool out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.